Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. When we think of nightclubs, the sound that usually springs to mind is that pounding beat. That repetitive but addictive sound about twice as fast as a heartbeat. It makes you want to nod your head and move your body and get up to dance. The pounding beat at the heart of house music has an infectious energy about it. And when house music was born in Chicago in the 1970s, it drew people from all across the city to an old building in downtown Chicago. My name is Karen McCormick. I am a hairstylist in Chicago, and I'm definitely a house head. Karen grew up in Chicago in the 70s, and she saw firsthand the profound ways the city was changing. It had world-class sports teams and became home to one of America's first city-funded public art programs. The skyline got taller, and the construction of the famous Sears Tower made the city home to what was then the world's tallest building. Chicago had changed. The politics had changed. Everything changed. The city had become the bustling metropolis that we now know as the capital of the Midwest, the Third Coast. But there was something else in the air, too. A new sound. My brother... Albert McCormick was a promoter, a huge promoter in Chicago, Illinois. And he promoted teenage parties. And he was very, very successful at it. He'd heard rumors about a hot spot in town playing new music. So one night, Albert had an idea. He said, come on, I got this place I want to take you to. And I was like, okay, well, let's, let's all go. So they got dressed up. We were wearing the tight legging jeans and the halter tops. And I had on, I would never forget, I had on these glitter clogs. They were so sharp. <laughs> I love the glitter clogs. And going out to this new club meant leaving for the party when most of the city was fast asleep. Because it didn't open till 12 o'clock at night. The sky was dark 
and the moon was bright as they traveled downtown, Karen and her glitter clogs walked down a cobblestone street that led her to the warehouse. It was at 206 South Jefferson, but back in the day, 206 South Jefferson was a dismal street. But the venue on the street was huge and majestic. It had an exposed brick facade and big curved windows. There was nothing nearby except for the line that stretched around the building and the music that spilled out onto the streets. It was a long line. Everyone was just trying to get into this place. Karen followed the line. As people ahead of her started to go in, the music got louder, guiding her closer until she got to the entrance. And you had to walk up a hall of stairs. And at the hall of stairs, there were two men that greet you. The men were polite and had smiles on their faces, but they were the gatekeepers. And you don't know if you're going to get in or not because they did turn people away. And so I was like, what is this? What are we going to? But her brother reassured her. And he said, come on, just come on in. Inside, it all came into focus. When we went in, we walked up the stairs, we got in, and it was like, I mean, just people were everywhere. They were sitting, they were dancing, they were on the floor, they were congregating. Karen had entered the warehouse, and it was a visceral experience, one that held Karen by the shoulders and grabbed hold of all her senses. The moment she stepped inside, the club opened itself up to Karen and she dived in head first. It was an entire world she had no idea existed. A club that was about to transform the sound of dance music. Everybody is just twirling and dancing and hips are moving and people going on their knees. And <laughs> it was just, it was everything. People had come from all over the city to experience the warehouse. You had all walks of life there. There was no boundaries. There was no one that was not welcome to each other. The club was filled with all kinds of people from the Black, Latino, and queer community. And they'd all converged onto the dance floor. It was magical. People from all over Chicago dancing to the euphoric sound of a new genre being created right there in the city. Your ears is so filled with good music. The music sounded a little bit like disco, but there was something about it that Karen had never heard before. And it flowed through the people who danced at the warehouse as if they were simply just a vessel for the DJ. Karen didn't know yet how profound an effect the warehouse would have on her or the city. That night, she was standing smack dab in the middle of a sea of change. Just as she was, the world was getting an introduction to house music. You hear this music going boom, 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 boom. You just hear this boom and you're like, what is that? And then you go down the stairs where it's pitch black, but you see strobe lights going and they had different lights going. 
But more than anything, the room was just filled with music. The equipment that they had in that place was like phenomenal. And so it beat every part of that floor. The music that played at the warehouse was unlike anything anyone had ever heard before. And soon it would go from being called warehouse music to just house music. Because house music was born right there at 206 South Jefferson Avenue in downtown Chicago, Illinois. We didn't even think of it as club culture. You went to that party and you released all your demons. That's how it worked. It was dance music that broke boundaries. The music moved through you. The bass was so incredibly loud. I mean, you felt it rumble your whole body while you're on the dance floor, just standing. So you couldn't help but to dance. It didn't matter who you were, what you were, where you came from. It did not matter. What mattered is that we all came together and we all felt one thing, and that was the music. House music would change lives and transform the sound of the dance floor. And its story started at the warehouse, where a new sound became a new religion, followed by people from around the city and then the world. However it got its name, it's one of the hottest things going. And as Jay Levine reports, it may only be a matter of time before house musicians become heroes in their own home. From London Audio, iHeartRadio, and executive producer Paris Hilton, this is the history of the world's greatest nightclubs a 12-part podcast about the iconic venues and people that revolutionized how we party. Some of the world's most legendary nightclubs were known for the unique community they welcomed, others for the cultural movements they started, and some for the musicians and DJs they introduced to the world. The best nightclubs champion new music, transform lives, and provide an escape from life's pressures. One more thing. This is the history of some of the world's greatest nightclubs, not a ranking of every club in the world. It's an exploration of the spaces, people, and club nights that made a lasting impact on nightlife and music today. I'm your host, Ultranate. I'm a singer, songwriter, musician, and I found my purpose in club culture. This is episode four, The Warehouse and Music Box, Chicago, Illinois. The warehouse was ground zero for the rise of house music. It was music made by and for the Black, Latino, and queer communities who were looking for a safe space to get together, let loose, and dance their worries away. House music began at the warehouse. But when the warehouse closed and its owner opened up a new club called The Music Box, it became more vibrant and multi-layered before it skyrocketed to become the genre we now know and love. In the process, house music broke some serious boundaries and left an indelible mark on pop and dance music. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Disco had dominated the music scene of the late 60s and early 70s. And so many of the musicians that had been central to the scene were from Chicago. The emotions have released Best of My Love, which had poured onto dance floors across the city. And Earth, Wind & Fire had commanded the charts with songs like Boogie Wonderland. But by the late 70s, disco music was on the decline. Some of the backlash was because people thought it wasn't political enough. And some of it was because there was a new wave of rock music taking over the music scene. But a significant amount of the backlash was rooted in racism and homophobia. The anti-disco movement grew louder and stronger, culminating in what happened on July 12, 1979, the day disco died. It started at a baseball game. The Chicago White Sox were playing the Detroit Tigers in a doubleheader game. The local Chicago rock station, WLUP, had partnered with the team to host the Disco Demolition Night. It had started off as just a stunt. Posters had been stuck up across the city saying anyone who brought a disco record to the park could watch the game for 98 cents. In return, before the second game started, they would get to watch all the disco albums get blown up. It was a tongue-in-cheek thing because the Sox had hosted a disco night a couple of years before, and the rock station wanted to make a joke about the fact that there was a backlash amongst their fans to disco music. But things got serious really quickly. Between games at tonight's doubleheader, a local disc jockey blew up disco records in center field. And a crowd responded by rushing the field. The stunt had ended in a riot that saw tens of thousands of fans storm the pitch, throwing glass bottles, firecrackers, and lighters onto the field as they burnt records. It was a huge deal. Ask around Chicago, everyone remembers it. Yeah, my name's Micah Salkind. Micah wrote the book, Do You Remember House? Chicago's Queer of Color Undergrounds. It's a history of house music in Chicago that profiles the Black, Brown, and queer architects behind the genre. The disco demolition was one of the major markers of the decline of disco. But the genre had been on its way out for a while by then. You know, in the late 70s, the bottom of the American disco industry drops out. 
major industry players had slowly been divesting from the genre. You know, no one's no one's trying to pay some French horn player and you know cellist at Sigma Studios in Philadelphia to record new disco music like they were in the late 70s. But the sound didn't just disappear. Black, brown, and queer people across the city still loved the sense of freedom and escapism the disco age had ushered in. So they set out to give it a new life. Young entrepreneurial musicians and some of some of whom totally amateur, some of whom had other, you know, musical training and abilities, um, were trying to approximate the energy of that disco music and, you know, creating like this, what now sounds as though it must have been so futuristic at the time. They had the building blocks of disco music, but they wanted to transform it. But I think for them it was just really like, all right, we have access to these tools. We need new tracks, like, let's make it. Just trying to recreate a sound that, that didn't exist anymore using new tools. The sound they created with those new tools was house music. But to understand where it came from, we have to go to the place where it started, the warehouse. My name is Robert Williams, and I'm from New York City, Manhattan. Robert was a young Black man who'd been born and raised in New York. But in the 70s, he realized he needed a change. I had gotten tired of the rat race of New York. It was challenging. And my aunt suggested I come to a more laid-back environment. So she suggested Chicago, and I was like, mm, okay. I wasn't overly thrilled at the moment, but you know, I said, okay, I'll check it out. So he did. But Robert soon found out that Chicago wasn't just laid back. It was a straight-up snooze fest. It was very boring here to me because I was used to the bright lights and activity of New York City. So it was like going from the city to the country, in a sense, to me. Things slowed all the way down for him. New York was going through a tumultuous time in the 70s, but it was establishing itself as a hub for some of the greatest minds and artists in the country. Chicago, on the other hand, didn't have as much to offer him. So Robert took advantage of the fact that there wasn't much going on in the boring old city and started throwing parties to bring it to life. You know, Robert was a part of a, a collective called Us Studios, and they threw parties at other... Uh, lost spaces in the near west side of Chicago, the West Loop and the South Loop. The city already had a Black and queer underground party culture. When disco kind of like dispersed, so to speak, socially or commercially, like the clubs and what have you, then the music kind of like went underground. People threw parties across the city but the scene needed a real venue to take it to the next level. So Robert decided to sign a lease on a building downtown. The building was a three-story. It was built in the early 20s, and it was all Art Deco. And it was like 3,000 square foot per floor. It was a nice space. Robert commissioned his friend, Richard Long, who did sound design for the legendary Studio 54, to do the sound system for the warehouse. But the club was missing something. I needed a DJ, so I, I had to go to New York and ask some of my friends to come help me with the project. 
there was a musical shift happening in the late 70s. Disco was out, but something new was on the horizon. Robert could hear it, and he had just the right person in mind to bring it to life on the warehouse dance floor. You see, there were two DJs he knew from back home in New York that he thought would be a perfect fit for the warehouse. Frankie Knuckles and Larry LeVan, two DJs who would go on to become musical legends. But when Robert first met them, they weren't DJs. They were just annoying kids. They were truants when they were like 15 and 14. I was like 18 or 19, and I was working for the New York Department of Probation. And they were under my caseload. Yep. Robert was their probation officer. They were juvenile, so I was supposed to be their counselor. But I was going to the club just like they were. They were underage going to the club, but I wasn't. But I wasn't exactly being a mentor. I had to restructure our relationship. But when they grew up, and were finally old enough to actually be at the club, Robert began to see how talented they were. Larry LeVan had to stay in New York because he was in the middle of creating Paradise Garage, which you'll hear more about in a few episodes. But Frankie Knuckles accepted Robert's invite to be the DJ at the warehouse in Chicago. Even as a kid, it was very clear that Frankie Knuckles had a gift. He was an artist. Frankie attended Parsons School of Design in New York before DJing, so he was an illustrator, an artist. He developed his skills while DJing at New York's Continental Baths, and Robert really believed in Frankie. So when the warehouse opened in 1977, it opened with Frankie Knuckles as its resident DJ. It was only a matter of time before crowds began to travel to downtown Chicago to hear the new sound Frankie was crafting. The warehouse is the birthplace of house music culture. And I don't think it'd be exaggerating to say it's also where the seeds for house music as a genre were planted. They didn't know it just yet, of course. But Frankie would pretty much change the game, earning himself an international reputation. Frankie Knuckles is often described as the godfather of house music in Chicago. Frankie had his ear to the ground. He took underground tracks and put his own spin on it. He knew exactly how to make the music he was playing sound and feel like something new. His music was welcoming to everyone on the dance floor. And Frankie had a way of mixing his sets together so that everyone could see themselves in the songs. Because for Frankie, it was all about the song and using the vocals to anchor the crowd to the dance floor. If you've got people from all these different places in the room, you need to play something for those Latino kids from the Northwest side who love freestyle music. You need to play something for the Black kids from the South side who grew up listening to, you know, funk and soul that their parents played. Frankie became famous for mixing together underground disco, soul, and electronic music. Then beefing up the rhythm with drum machines to really get the crowd moving. The DJs were cutting across these social boundaries in the city of Chicago and creating something that met everyone's needs. The music Frankie was playing didn't have its own name yet, but it would soon be known to the world as House. You know, if you analyze the music, like from a musicological standpoint and look at like what people were doing with drum machines, samplers and synthesizers during the mid 80s. It sounds like this. It's four-to-the-floor dance music that 
is connected to a history of disco, R&B, funk, and soul. It's also a whole culture. House music was the sound of the bass and snare drums, the offbeat hi-hats, and the around 120 beats per minute tempo. But it was also the way that DJs like Frankie Knuckles played it. Frankie had an ear for this type of music. He felt each track in his body and wanted you to feel it too. Frankie made sure that you felt it in your soul. Remember Karen McCormick? She spent a lot of time dancing to Frankie's tracks. He made sure that you heard lyrics or what the music was saying. And the music itself was on such a high lift bass that it made you just move your body. It didn't give a dance. It didn't have a name. You just moved your body. And it would bring people together. He played each song with deep intention. And if Frankie knew that it was a good song, he's going to make you hear the song. When Frankie would listen to music, he's not just listening to just some sound. He's listening to everything that the person put into that music, whether it was their strings of violins to where it was the voice itself. When it came down to it, he knew how to blend it all. People could come from all corners of Chicago. Flocking to Warehouse after midnight just to hear Frankie play, his sets became so popular, in fact, that stores across the city stocked up their windows and shelves with the music that Frankie had played at the warehouse. It became known as warehouse music, and then after a while, just house music. Frankie Knuckles was the godfather of house music. He was the resident DJ at the club that the sound got its name from. And his sets pioneered a new way of blending music that would go on to become one of the most well-known and loved genres in the world. It would go on to influence clubs like the Hacienda, a club all the way in Manchester, England, which we'll hear more about in the next episode, as well as offshoots and reinterpretations of the sound all around the world. But the appeal of the warehouse wasn't just tied to the music Frankie played. It was the culture the community, the ritual they were building. We were there every Saturday, you know? The same people and more were there every Saturday. After her first time at the warehouse, Karen went back again and again. The warehouse was her place. You prepared your week for Saturday, you know? You were like, what am I wearing? You didn't care how you looked the rest of the week until Saturday (laughs) came. Monday through Friday, you could be in sweats and a t-shirt, but on Saturday night, you looked good. And you dressed so you could dance. Guys wore tons of leather, headbands, tank tops, and girls wore big earrings and even bigger hair. Once I spent the whole week making genie pants for myself and my crew for Saturday night to show up, and that was it, our stage, our runway. I will always make sure I had on leg warmers, because you wanted to keep your leg, you know, flexible. So I would always wear something movable where I can move in it. Because people showed up ready to really dance. And the warehouse wasn't just a place to party. It was a safe haven, too. Remember the backlash against disco music? It wasn't just about the music. It was about the culture of disco music, 
which had become a home for people of color and the queer community. When the music had gone underground, they'd gone underground too. Dancing at house parties and places like the warehouse to get away from the harassment and discrimination they were facing outside. The warehouse is born out of a desire to find a space where Black men in particular, but also Black lesbians, bisexual folks, straight people, you know, all kinds of people could come together without being asked for multiple forms of identification or given a hard time on the dance floor or at the bar. It was more than just a physical location. It was an idea, a feel. It was a lot bigger than its physical presence. The music was about a kind of social freedom that you couldn't find even in white gay spaces. So it also, you know, it's like Black folks partied in different ways in part because their musical traditions were, you know, born in Black spaces, not in white cultures. The warehouse was a place where these folks were free to truly be themselves without judgment, to escape what was transpiring both socially and politically. It was a place to be free to let your guard down. You know, there's something about that time of day, right? Like the time between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. where the normal rhythms of urban life shift and everyone's asleep and this is a time where people can get out of their heads and, and whether they're they're doing that with the assistance of drugs or with just the sheer exertion of their dancing. Um, you know, I think there is a spiritual quality to that. People went to the warehouse every Saturday night to experience what true freedom felt like. There was a spiritual component to those nights too. For those who felt discriminated against and unwelcome by the churches of their childhood, there was an answer. You know, Black folks who maybe have been disconnected from the way that the church would support that kind of upliftedness or Black queer folks who had that experience or, or queer folks who are searching for something in the city that their families in the kind of like rural or suburban world couldn't provide them. The warehouse became a church. The songs felt like gospel and dancing felt like worship. It was a hallowed space and like church, it was a place to return to week after week. You know, if they were gay and they couldn't go to church anymore because their family cast them out, they could commune under the supervision of, you know, Frankie Knuckles. It would be Sunday morning and they, it would be a kind of like continuation of the party. And, you know, maybe Frankie would play some gospel track at the end of the night to kind of send people on their way. Frankie knew what he was doing. He knew what his dancers needed and he delivered. Playing music that mimicked the way a choir at church would sing to the crowd to give people a place to belong, to reach out with his music and tell them they were loved. The warehouse was designed by queer and Black creators and became a place for folks who felt othered in their daily lives to feel safe, to be temporarily insulated from the racism, homophobia, and misogyny that remained rampant in the outside world, but also to express joy. Next, we'll dive into the story of DJ Ron Hardy and the Music Box and how he took house music to new heights. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. 
Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. By 1976, the political tide in Chicago had turned. The city's longtime mayor had died, and when his replacement, Jane Byrne, stepped into office, she began to change the look and feel of downtown Chicago. The downtown area was just changing. The renovations happening in that part of the city made it even harder to keep places like the warehouse alive. As downtown changed and became more gentrified, the lease became too expensive for Robert to keep running the warehouse. So the club closed its doors for the final time in 1984. And while the warehouse was closing for good, house music wasn't going anywhere. Things had really only just begun because soon there would be a new DJ in town who would adapt the sound and give it a twist. Listening to house music for the first time changed people. Once they heard it, they wanted more and they would follow it wherever it went. But house music had become bigger than Frankie in the warehouse. House was infectious. House music didn't just belong to the warehouse. It became the sound of the city. And Robert, who created the warehouse, found another location. He signed a lease on a former industrial building at 1632 South Indiana Ave. And in February of 1983, his new club was born the music box. And this is the club where house music really took off. My name is Stacy Collins, and I worked at the music box as security. The music box wasn't a replica of the warehouse. It took the sound of house music and the spirit of underground clubs and created something new. That sound system was something I have never experienced in my life. You, I don't, I can't imagine how anybody could go to that dance floor and not want to dance because the music moved through you. The bass was so incredibly loud. I mean, you felt it rumble your whole body while you're on the dance floor, just standing. The music box had the same vibrant, infectious energy of the warehouse and continued to provide a safe space for Black, Brown, and queer people but it was in a new location with a refined sound. Even the architecture and equipment at the music box was different. So there's this legacy of Black musical creativity that precedes the development of house music culture in the city that I think is tied to, like, the actual industrial spaces, you know, the brick walls that 
held the sound in particular ways, the you know huge lofted ceilings, the buckling wood floors, like those things matter when you party, right? Like it's not just what you're hearing and the sound system you're hearing it on, but it's the vibe and the vibrations of the space. The space was like the Paradise Garage, an iconic club in New York. And we'll spend some time at the garage later on in this series. But what you need to know now is just how influential clubs crafted by Black creatives were in the 70s and 80s. The music box was kind of like a dark rectangle. At one end, there was a mass of speakers along a wall. At the other end, there was a DJ booth playing out the propulsing pounding sounds of a new frenetic kind of house music. The music box had something different. You could call it a special acetate up their sleeves. They'd given a new DJ the creative freedom to add his own spin on this newfound religion that was house music. And that DJ was Ron Hardy. Ron Hardy started his career doing DJ sets at gay clubs in Chicago, playing his favorite songs to underground crowds. And he gained a reputation for playing music from different genres with a manic kind of energy. And that was the genius of Ron Hardy. It wasn't just that he played what was typical dance music, but he played dance music, which was, you know, disco from the 70s, some dance from the 80s, a lot of Italo disco, but he also played a lot of jazz funk and uh, dance floor jazz, even some rock inspired stuff. He took the classics, made them feel new and took you on a journey. What was so dope about it was that even though he could play songs from so many different genres, all within a matter of 60 minutes, the vibe was always consistent. The music was always thumping. Ron was a pretty heavy drug user, which influenced the music he listened to and the way he played. Heroin slowed the world down for him. When he DJed at the music box, he would hear the music playing slower than it actually was. So he would pick up the tempo and make it play faster. It created a frenetic, manic, but addictive sense of movement on the dance floor. And this new music changed the way people danced. All of a sudden, people were moving their bodies in a new way. There was one song that encompassed that new sound. Okay, so there's a song called Jack Your Body. Jack, 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 Jack your body. Jack, 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 Jack your body. Jack your body means that you would kind of go into a little trance and start, your body would start jerking really hard. And it would have called Jack your body. Jacking became a new style of dancing that captured the energy that Ron brought to house music. It was faster and more frenetic. And that's what they liked about Ron Hardy. Ron pioneered fast-paced house music, and it really set him apart from other DJs, even from Frankie. It's not like they had really different repertoires, but Ron would beat out these amateur beat tracks, especially into the mid-80s when younger producers start really making music in Chicago. And he would play the music with a harder edge. House music had started at the warehouse with Frankie, but it truly broke out at the music box with Ron. Ron Hardy catapulted house to the forefront of dance music, and without his influence, house just wouldn't be what it is or as popular as it is today. Ron played with conviction. 
It was like somebody had a gun to his head. He played that shit like he meant it. His sets had a bit of a kick to them. There was fight in those songs, and music was his greatest weapon. He played tracks that made Black, Brown, and queer people feel welcome. But he also played tracks to fight back because Ron used his music to stand up for his people, his community. One night, the police raided the music box. They showed up on the dance floor and killed the vibe. They came on the dance floor. They had us turn on the light. So, you know, there's lots of drugs, Danny. So everybody's trying to throw their drugs under the stage in the back. So they don't have them on. So everybody's throwing their drugs under the stage. Police walking around, checking IDs, making sure everybody's at least 18, because you had to be at least 18 to get in. And, uh, you know, patting some people down, making sure they don't have weapons or drugs, things like that. But while the lights were on and people stopped dancing, Ron kept the music going. He kept playing music. He's still doing blends, making, you know, playing sounds. And then all of a sudden, as we're being harassed, he puts on The Walk by the time. Ron wasn't going to let the police ruin the party without putting up some kind of fight. There's a part that he edited where it says, we don't like policemen. And he looped it over and over and over and over. So while we're getting searched, he's got the music on and it's real low. It's low, but it's low enough for everybody to hear. And they go, we don't like policemen. We don't like policemen. And I'm, and I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, shit, we are going to jail tonight. But Ron was always in control. He knew what he was doing, even when he was poking the police with his music. He was a fierce advocate for his community, even from behind the DJ booth. Fortunately, we didn't go to jail, but the cops were really pissed and the sergeant came in. You're going to have to turn that shit off. But he got the point across that night to the police. I love that moment in time to be able to tell the police, screw you. We're not doing shit, but we're having a good time. Leave us alone. (laughs) That was kind of the way Ron operated. No one could get in the way of him and the environment he was creating with his music. I've been to other clubs and they've been some some pretty cool clubs. They were nice, but they nothing ever matched that. The music box was the kind of place that was just there for you. There was this real sense of community in Chicago house music. And while Ron and Frankie weren't exactly friends, there was a sense of community in the house music scene that bound them together. I remember after after the Pride Parade one year here, Frankie would always go to Belmont Rocks. That's an area on the lakefront of Chicago on the north side. And he would always spin music at Belmont Rocks after the Pride Parade, Gay Pride Parade. Well, one year we were out there and it started raining. So Frankie started packing up his equipment, but then... And Ronnie's like, let's go down to the club. We can have a party at the club. And it was just little stuff like that, just those impromptu parties, those wonderful marathons, the camaraderie. The it was it was a feeling that's so hard to describe and put into words, but it's something I wish everyone could feel. That camaraderie came from being right there at the birth and growth of house music. Frankie and Ron had worked at different clubs at different times, but together they'd created a sound that changed music forever. A sound that's in the very bones of dance music. The music box and the warehouse don't exist anymore, and both DJs died far too young. Frankie Knuckles died in 2014 at the age of 59, but before he left us, he had become my family and a mentor. 
and Ron Hardy died in 1992. He was just 34. But the music made and pioneered in those clubs by those people remains alive. House music changed the spirit of Chicago. I think Chicago can teach us a lot about musical diversity and how people with different tastes can actually share musical space in surprising ways. The city knows it too. They named a section of the road on South Jefferson Street after Frankie Knuckles. You can't really throw a stone at a house head in Chicago without hearing about the warehouse. The warehouse is the club where Chicago's house music cultures were incubated. It's the space that started what became a movement. The genre, of course, is everlasting. I imagine if he was alive today, he'd take you right up to the present moment, but never, you know, forgetting where he comes from or where his audience has been. But it's also what their music did. Its ability to open space for Black, Latino, and queer people specifically. That is part of its major significance. There's something that people are trying to tap into, which is about connection, which is about release, which is about just like shedding the baggage of your everyday life. I think we all need these spaces, whether we know it or not. That was just a place where you were free and you felt free. And that's what house music does to you. That's what warehouse music does to you. It makes you feel free. These two DJs changed the game. And artists today are still being influenced by house music. Megastars like Beyonce and Drake dedicated major studio albums to house music in 2022. Just listen to Renaissance and Honestly Nevermind. The influence is so clear. Beyonce went on to win a 2023 Grammy for Renaissance for Best Dance Electronic Album. And in her acceptance speech, she specifically thanked the LGBTQ plus community. I'd like to thank the queer community for your love and for inventing this genre. I think it would be hard to point to an artist that is doing dance music today that doesn't owe some debt to, you know, Frankie Knuckles and Ron Hardy and the work that they did at the warehouse in the music box. In the next episode, we're going to explore a club on the other side of the ocean that ushered in the era of Acid House. We're heading to Manchester, England to visit the Hacienda. The History of the World's Greatest Nightclubs is produced by Neon Hum Media for London Audio and iHeartRadio. For London Audio, our executive producers are Paris Hilton, Bruce Robertson, and Bruce Gersh. The executive producer for Neon Hum is Jonathan Hirsch. Our producer is Rufaro Faith Mazarua. Navani Otero and Liz Sanchez are our associate producers. Our series producer is Crystal Genesis. Our editor is Stephanie Serrano. This episode was written by Kate Mishkin and Rufaro Faith Mazarura and fact-checked by Katherine Newhan. Theme and original music by Asha Ivanovich. Our sound design engineers are Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. I'm your host, Alternate, and we'll see you next time on the history of the world's greatest nightclubs. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 